So uh, at the start of this year, we began a new sermon series in the book of Acts. And we've had a a little bit of a a break, partly because I I was poorly and then we had half term and so on. So it's been a few weeks since we were there. So let's just sort of uh, recap a little bit and set the scene. Um, The book of Acts was written by Luke who also wrote one of the Gospels. So this is really a, a, like a two-volume work. This is this is volume two. And he here in Acts, he traces the early years of the church, or what we're calling the Jesus movement. Uh, he's a theologian and a historian. And so here's how we might sum up the book of Acts. The book of Acts is about the continuing work of Jesus to build his kingdom in all the world through his spirit-empowered people. Now, in the first half of the chapter, uh, which we saw, Luke records Jesus uh, appearing to his apostles after his resurrection for about 40 days, and he commissions them there to be his witnesses in the whole world and build his kingdom. Then he ascends back into heaven where he rules the universe for the sake of his church. Now, before he ascended uh, back to heaven, Jesus tells his disciples to wait, to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, who would give them power to fulfill his mission in the world. Then what we have here in the rest of, of chapter one is really an insight into what this new church was getting up to in this waiting period, about 10 days uh, of time between Jesus's ascension and the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came. Now, um, now last time I said, really, that in this waiting time, the apostles weren't really doing anything. Um, you know, they could have just uh, jumped straight in and launched straight into the mission. But in obedience to Christ, they don't do anything. They they wait, like he told them. But they weren't exactly doing nothing, were they? In fact, it was actually, as we see here, a very um, productive, very active time. We find them gathered together for worship and prayer, studying the Bible uh, and appointing a new apostle. So uh, the question is then, um, uh, why does Luke include this here? Uh, why did he think it was important to re- include this? I've looked at some other kind of churches doing sermon series on this, and usually this is often this is often gets skipped this bit. But it, it was important to Luke to include it here. Um, he could have jumped straight into the good stuff in chapter two, you know, the spirit coming and the mission launching and so on. This all seems a bit kind of administrative. Well, maybe Luke's just being a good historian here and just kind of filling in a gap. But actually, as I hope to show you, there, there's a lot more going on here that, that is actually crucial for us to learn from. And what we can learn here is that is what at an apostolic church really looks like. What it means to be an apostolic church in its character and its creed. We see the, the essence of it here. I would even say this. To be a Christian church is to be an apostolic church. We will follow in in the apostolic character and creed we, we see here in its beliefs. So there are kind of these two key things, essentially, I want to share from this passage about what an apostolic church really is and what it does and how first it sees the Bible, but also how it sees itself, its identity. 
But before we get into that, let's just kind of set the scene real quick with a kind of a bit of a bonus point here, a bit of a bonus, um, uh, uh, yeah, point about uh, how we see them congregating for worship. This is the essence of of the apostolic character of the church. They are congregating for worship. As I said, Jesus has ascended back to heaven, but the disciples don't disperse; they gather. They don't all go home to their own places, twiddling their thumbs and wait alone. No, they're, they're gathering together. In verse uh, 12 to 14, they return to Jerusalem to wait for the Spirit in obedience to Christ. I love that verse 14 there. Uh, look down there with me. Verse 14, they all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And, and there's an important point here. Uh, which we'll see again and again in Acts, uh, which is why we're not going to spend a lot of time in it here, but we'll see it again, about the importance of gathering as Christians. Here, this this fledgling church is committed, firstly, to gathered worship and prayer. There's a real sense of unity and togetherness here. That's an important word to Luke. They were joined together. This is what a church is. It's an assembly. That's what the word church means. And in fact, to be a truly apostolic Christian means you will congregate with other Christians in church for joyful worship and earnest prayer. You cannot be a Christian and not congregate with other Christians or be part of church. You can't really be a a Christian without congregating. And as I've said many times before, the church is the most important thing God is doing in the universe. He's not primarily making Christians, he's making a church. Why then would you not gather? An apostolic Christian will gather with the church and an apostolic church will be united in joyful worship and constant prayer. As I said, there's more for us to think about that sort of thing, but let's pick up things now Uh, In verse 15, we see the church congregating for worship. Now we see how important the Bible was to the apostles, how they were using it and studying it in this waiting time. They were comprehending the scriptures. I wonder how you see the Bible, how you read the Bible. Maybe the Bible is just a big book of rules, uh, to follow uh, sort of a moral code maybe it's more like a, a self-help type of book to help you improve your life or something like that well what we see here is the apostles understanding the bible comprehending the bible reading the bible as a book about christ they were reading the bible in a jesus-centered way so look at verse 15 to 17 uh, it says this In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Then let's just skip the gory bit again and go to verse 20. It carries on. For what said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place, Judas's place, be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. So, 
So it seems that in this waiting time, the apostles are searching the scriptures. They're trying to make sense of everything that's just happened and what they've witnessed through the scriptures. Now remember, Jesus himself had taught them how to do this. He himself had taught them how to read the Bible. This was one of the main things he was doing during his 40 days of resurrection appearances. He taught them to read the Bible as a book about him, ultimately. So let's see this. Flick back past John. Go back. Keep going back to the end of Luke. Luke chapter 24. So remember Luke, who wrote Acts, this is his first volume. We've gone back there. Look at verse 27. Luke 24, verse 27. Jesus has appeared to some of his disciples, and he's explaining to them why he had to suffer and rise again, to make sense of it. And he does that through the Bible. Verse 27, it says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He's explaining himself through the scriptures. It's all about me. Um, Then skip down to verse 44. Luke 24, verse 44. And he said to his disciples, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Verse 45. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So here they are, they're given this incredible insight, this this teaching of Christ. And Peter and the apostles are reading the Bible in this way, that they're practicing what Jesus has been teaching them. And in particular here, they're trying to make sense of what Judas Iscariot did. You remember Judas, of course, the betrayer. One of the twelve disciples Jesus chose. And he wickedly betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and and handed him over and he was crucified. You see, Judas was a big problem for the apostles. How How do you handle somebody like Judas, right? How could they make sense of why Jesus would have chosen him in the first place? And moreover, Jesus, Judas was Uh, undermining the credibility of the apostles. If you've got somebody like Judas who was in your ranks, people are going to be thinking, ah, they're all corrupt, aren't they? So it's a bit of a problem. And and this is partly why Luke needs to include this here. It's kind of an an apologetic for the apostles. Judas made them look bad, but Luke is eager to show, firstly, Judas' betrayal was always part of God's plan. A necessity, in fact, that language comes up through it. It had to happen this way. It was necessary. We've got to do it this way. This is part of the plan. So scripture would be fulfilled. But also, secondly, Luke wants to emphasize Judas really wasn't one of them. He was, he's apostate. He, he's, um, he's accursed, even. That's why you've got this gory detail in verses 18 to 19 about him exploding all over a field. It's horrible, isn't it? But it's, it's this graphic, gruesome description of his demise to emphasize this point. Judas has been cut off. He's not one of us. He's cursed, in fact, by God. So that's some of the context. This is why Luke's going here 
and why it was important for the, the disciples to understand Judas in particular in this way, according to the scriptures. And, and there are two particular scriptures that Peter refers to here. The first is Psalm 69, verse 25. And the other is Psalm 103, verse 8. Both of those Psalms have kind of similar themes about an innocent sufferer and his sort of hateful enemies and something about their comeuppance. That's kind of what those Psalms are about. And and Peter's reading this. And maybe these are the Psalms, the very Psalms Jesus himself has referred to. Psalm 67 comes up again and again, actually, throughout the scriptures about and applied to Jesus. So maybe this is one of those Jesus taught them about. And he applies it to Judas and Jesus. Look at verse 16. Again, it says that these Psalms were spoken through the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David. I mean, the Holy Spirit hasn't even shown up yet, but he's still working. He's still working through his scriptures and and, and through the mouth of David. So, So the apostles now are seeing King David in the Old Testament as kind of what we would call a type of Christ, a picture, a foreshadowing, a prefiguring of Jesus himself. We'll see this again through the book of Acts. It was part of their, what we call their hermeneutic, how they interpreted the Bible. It's, they were seeing David and they were seeing how his life kind of mirrored Jesus's. It helped them understand Jesus is what we call a Davidic Christology, where the life of David is applied or fulfilled in Jesus. That's how they would go on preaching and proclaiming the good news according to the scriptures the old testament scriptures by the way the new testament wasn't even written yet so they had to preach the gospel of christ from the old testament and they see it's a message about jesus so in other words the apostles are comprehending the things which have happened according to the scriptures But they're also comprehending the scriptures according to Christ. I think this is really important for us to learn from. From this apostolic example. We must first read the Bible in a Christ-centered way. Listen, the Bible is not a book about you. It's not primarily a self-help book. And if you miss Jesus in the Bible, you will end up missing the whole point of the Scriptures entirely. If you miss Christ, the Bible will become just a self-help book with rules for you to follow, laying burdens on God's people. Be like this. Do this. Of course, the Bible has much to teach us about what to be and what to do. Of course, it's full of commands. Yes, that's certainly true. But you have to set those commands within a context of grace and mercy and the new covenant in Christ. If you miss that, you get into all kinds of trouble. As you read the scriptures, folks... If you're primarily looking to see yourself in it, first and foremost, how to be like this person, how to be like that person, then you're going to go astray. Search the scriptures as they testify about Christ and seeing him 
Then you'll learn how to respond and how to live and how to obey. But start with Jesus. Ask the question, maybe of every passage that you come to. How does this help me know Jesus better? How does it help me understand him and his work of salvation or about his father? How, how does this help me understand his calling on my life and so on? So that's the first thing, to learn from the apostolic example of how they're looking at the scripture. They, they preached Christ from all the scriptures. Secondly, we also learn from their example in how we make sense of our lives and the world around us. That's exactly what they're doing. Through the scriptures, they're making sense of what's just happened to them. The scriptures are teaching them about the reality in which they now find themselves. We don't interpret the scriptures according to our experience. Rather, we seek to see the world with a biblical, Christ-centered worldview. We let God speak into our situations and experiences. We let God speak into our um, sufferings, our confusions, our worries. Showing us Jesus and his purposes for our lives. Because his truth sets us free. It guides us. It's like a light to us in the darkness and so on. So can you see those two things we can learn from the apostles? Even right here, how they're reading the Bible and how they're using the Bible to understand the world, understand their lives, understand this new reality in which they find themselves in. Comprehending the scriptures. This will bear relevance now on on kind of another important point here that I'd like to make, because this is perhaps the most important thing in this passage now, isn't it? It's, It's about really appointing a new apostle. That's really what's going on here which I think has to do with continuing the mission. Um, Judas, remember he's apostate, he's he's a goner. And so there's an opening on the team. There's a vacancy. Um, And again, prompted by the scriptures informing him that we need to appoint somebody to take his place, they find a 12th man. And what we see here isn't something purely pragmatic, but hugely, significantly theological. It's showing us that the church is a new and restored Israel with a new mission. So look back at verse 21. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justus and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots and the lot fell on Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. So we see some kind of practical stuff here, how they went about appointing this 12th man. Uh, but then we'll look at it, its significance. Uh, so first of all, there are three criteria that they use, aren't there? Firstly, he had to be a man who had been with them from the beginning. So somebody who had been exposed to the entirety of Jesus's ministry, about three years, learning from Jesus, seeing his example and hearing his teaching and so on. The second criteria is that he must be a witness of the resurrection. 
Uh, so this speaks again to the mission of the church uh, given by Jesus to be his witnesses in the world. So, of course, he had to be someone who has also witnessed the resurrection personally. Obviously, Judas didn't do that. But then the third criteria really here had to be uh, that he was chosen by Jesus himself. Uh, and that's what a, an apostle is, ultimately. Apostle, that just means one who is sent usually as a a representative or an ambassador. They are sent in the name of the king. Their words are the very words of the king. They have his authority. That's what an apostle is. So based on that first two criteria, being with him and and, uh, being witnesses, they, they find two men, Joseph and Matthias. But of course, Jesus has ascended to heaven. So how is Jesus going to choose the, the man he wants? Well, then they cast lots, it says. Essentially, kind of whatever they, however they did it, rolled the dice or pulled straws or whatever. It was an attempt to be impartial in the decision. Now, this was something sanctioned in the Old Testament. You had the priests would do this sort of thing. They were given two stones, the Urim and Thummim, and they would use these stones to try and make decisions like this as well. It's something sanctioned in the Old Testament. And there was this idea, we trust that the Lord sovereignly is at work, even in the casting of a lot, to reveal his will to us. Before they cast the lot, though, what do they do? They earnestly pray again. Lord, show us. You see everyone's heart. You see what we can't see. You need to personally choose the man you want. And so the lot falls on Matthias and he's added to their number. So that's kind of how they do it here. But listen, the primary lesson from this passage is not how do we make decisions. I mean, there are good things, though, we can note from this, aren't there? Certainly. Uh, First, they're informed by the Bible. They start there. This is what the Bible says. So they start there. They just use their simple common sense. Well, I was with this from the beginning. Yeah, okay. That helps them select two men. They pray. Oh, great. Making decisions. Yeah, certainly pray. Bible, common sense, wisdom, prayer. But they cast lots. Now, this is perhaps more questionable. Some people would take different views on this. Maybe there are some very rare cases. You do this sort of thing today. But we have to remember it's a unique moment in Acts. Um, It's the only other way. Perhaps they could have expected Jesus to reveal something so specific to them. But like I said, this isn't a passage about how to make decisions. It's about the significance of the apostles, particularly having 12 of them. Why should there be 12 anyway? Why all this hoo-ha about having another man? Well, 12 is an important number in the Bible, isn't it? It's a number that can symbolize or represent the kingdom of God and his people. Did we get some lights on in here? It feels a bit dark and gloomy. Is that all right? I'm struggling to see my notes here. Maybe I'm just tired. Uh, thank you, Steve. And thanks, Pierre, for doing that. Like a wizard, just straight away. Well done. Um, Twelve. It, it's a number that kind of... Oh, I can see you now. That's, no, turn them off. Uh, no, I can see you now. <laughs> Twelve. Twelve represents... It's a number that signals the kingdom of God. It's about the people of God. That's a number it's sort of representing. It represents God's people. Now, perhaps a key example here would be something like in the Old Testament uh, where Jacob had 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Under Moses, God would make his covenant with those 12 tribes. 
Each one of those tribes would inherit 12 portions, not 12 each, but 12 divided through them, uh, in the land of Canaan and so on. So when Jesus appoints 12 apostles, he's really signaling that his kingdom was a continuation, or maybe we should say a restoration of God's people. That's already been raised in verse 6. Jesus is establishing a new Israel. Not as something separate or different or as a replacement, but as a continuation, a fulfillment, a restoration of the old under the new king, the risen Messiah, Jesus. It's interesting here that Luke approximates the first church as being about 120 people, which is 12 times 10. Later in the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, John sees all of God's people, Jew and Gentiles from every nation, gathered in worship before Jesus, and they are represented by 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. There are 24 thrones, everyone together. The new Jerusalem has 12 foundations and 12 gates. You've also got the 144,000 in uh, Revelation chapter 7, representing God's people. That's 12 times 12 times 1,000. You also get Jesus' words in Luke chapter 22, verse 30, where he says... The 12 apostles will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's this sense of the apostles coming after the 12 tribes and having some judgment on them because of the greater revelation they have in Jesus. So there's this sense of fulfillment of the old, a joining together, a continuation of. We could go on with this number. It's interesting. But all of this is showing us that having 12 apostles wasn't just administrative. We have a vacancy to fill. It's not a practical thing, it's a theological thing. It was the signal, especially to the Jewish people, that this fledgling little church was a continuation, a fulfillment, a restoration of God's people. It was a continuation of God's work all through history. Folks, when you read the Old Testament, you're reading really our story. Not their story and now we have something different. It's part of our story. The fulfillment of the kingdom. But it's also something new. It's still something new. It's, it's a new people of the Messiah. Now listen, we don't, interestingly, we don't ever hear from most of the apostles ever again. I doubt maybe many of you can even remember all of their names. Um, this is the first and the last time we hear from Matthias. Most of what we know about the, the, the apostles is from church tradition. But that's because it's not really about them as individuals. It's about what they represent and about their message. That's where Luke is getting us to focus as the Jesus movement explodes into the world. Uh, We could talk about Paul. Sometime later, Paul is converted. Now, he too is commissioned and sent by Jesus. He becomes an apostle to the Gentiles, in fact. But that doesn't mean that's now 13 apostles. Paul comes much later. He doesn't fit all the criteria here. Yet he's still personally chosen by Jesus. He's sent as an apostle. The the point is here, at this point, they need 12 to show that there's a restoration of the foundation of the church. 
They need to get things restored so now the Spirit can flood in a restored people, a new Israel, the church. And that brings us now all together to the mission of the apostles. And this is where we begin to hone in on, on some of the things we can take from this. We see their purpose. Remember, they're Christ's ambassadors. They represent him and his, they have his authority. They, their words, the apostles' words, are Christ's words. Their message, Christ risen, exalted, conquering sin and death, and through him alone, true repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's their message. The message is Jesus Christ and him crucified for sins. Christ risen to bring life to his people. Christ exalted to the highest place as Lord and King of the universe. Christ as the coming judge of the world one day to renew it and bring peace. So this passage is about the identity of the church, the new people of God, and its mission, our mission. Our identity, our mission must be apostolic. Our message is the apostles' message. We depend on it, don't we? Our message is their message, the good news of Christ. We're not trying to bring something new or novel or different. Ours is the old, old story. I think this is so important for us. It's important that we honour and and respect and recognise our apostolic founding. To be thankful that we've been included in this story altogether. We've read from Ephesians 2, haven't we? That said, as mostly Gentiles here, we were outsiders. Foreigners. Foreigners to the promises of God. But through Christ, we've been brought near. He joins us together. Jew and Gentile into one new man. A new people. God has one people. We are all members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, built together as a temple, a dwelling for the Spirit. That's who we are, folks. This is why there had to be 12 apostles before the Spirit could come to show the world that God is fulfilling his plans. He's establishing his kingdom. So I think one of the responses to this is thankfulness, that we get to be included in this great story that God is working in the world, the kingdom of the Messiah. As I say, the most important thing God is doing in the universe right now is the church. It's the centre of his plans, and we get to be a part of that. Don't treat church like a hobby, like something you just kind of do at the weekend. Don't treat church like something you kind of pick up once the, kind of the cricket season's over, over or something like that. Don't squander your opportunity to gather with God's people and be a part of this Jesus movement, this glorious kingdom. One more thing to say here is that I think we honour our apostolic fathers by also being faithful to their message. Being faithful to their message. We proclaim their message In this dying and broken world, we're not seeking something new or novel. Our story is the old story. We preach Christ as revealed in all the scriptures and proclaimed by the apostles. We must make much of Jesus. Listen, if ever my preaching does not keep leading you back to Jesus, 
showing you his purposes and his truth and his work and his character and his gospel, his grace. I am being unfaithful to the apostolic method and message. Paul, the apostle, would say that if anyone, even an angel, preaches a different gospel to what they first received, they're they're accursed. The message of the apostles about Jesus must be the center of all that we do here at Christ Church and our lives. If you teach in Sunday school, please show our children Jesus. It's the most important thing. It's not about entertaining them or making it a fun time. Those are really great and important and, and part of it. Your goal is to bring Christ, bring them to Christ. If you teach a Bible study or lead a growth group, point us to Jesus. Show us how to live and pray and worship according to Christ. And right now, after this service, before we kind of rush off and get our coffee and we talk about what's going on, Seek today to point your brothers and sisters to Jesus. Remind them of his promises and of his love and of his grace. Folks, because I need Jesus. I need Christ more than anything. Every week, every Sunday, tell me about my Savior, about my Lord who loves me and died for me. If we're not preaching Christ, we have no gospel. We have nothing to say. Dear friends, there are so many Gospels out there, so many stories, so many messages that we're hearing day in and day out that claim this is the way. This is the way to life. This is the way to truth. This is the way to joy. But we know, we found, haven't we? They're all dead ends. There's no life there, but in Christ, there's life. How are we going to make sense of all of this, of this world that we live in, and all of these different messages. What's our standard for life? What's our guide in this dark world? What's our truth that we need to face these lies? It is the word of God, Jesus Christ, revealed in the scriptures, proclaimed by the apostles. This is the message the world needs too, folks. And this is where we come to this, continuing this mission. The world needs Jesus too. The world needs the apostolic message. Jesus has conquered sin and evil. He's risen from death. He's ascended to the Father. He's ruling and reigning for his church. And he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. This is how we build the church. How we grow the kingdom. By proclaiming the message about Jesus. Our job here in Tyler's 2024 is to continue this mission. Building the kingdom of Christ. Preaching the apostolic gospel. Let me finish by saying this then. Today, this king who is building his kingdom is offering you terms of peace. He's offering you life instead of death. He will pardon you and forgive you and accept you. He will love you with an unbreakable love if you would turn to him and believe. Leave behind the message of the world and its wicked ways. Trust in Christ. Follow him with all your heart. Have you done that? Will you do that? Dear Christian, look to Jesus this morning. Be encouraged and comforted that he is Lord, the risen Lord who loves us and died for us.
There we are. This is what we're seeing. Thank you for your time. There's a lot here, isn't there? Even in this passage, we might have just skipped because we don't really understand it, but there's a lot here. This is what we're seeing. The founding of the apostolic church, the new Israel, the new community of the Messiah. And if we claim to be a Christian church, we will be an apostolic church. First, as we gather for prayer and joyful worship, just like they did. Then as we faithfully proclaim the apostolic message of the apostles, proclaiming Christ crucified, risen, ascended, as we preach repentance and forgiveness of sins to all the world. And then now, now we're ready for Pentecost, (laughs) for the promised spirit. Let the power come and see the world turned upside down.